Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your most holy word, that you continue to conform us into the likeness of your son, that you would encourage us by your spirit, that you would give us a deeper love for your kingdom and the things of your kingdom, and most importantly, for the king himself. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1913, 412 million people lived under the reign of the British Empire. That was 23% of the world's population at the time. It remains the largest physical empire in human history. And at the peak of its power in 1920, the British Empire covered an astonishing 13.71 million square miles That's close to one quarter of the world's land area. At its height, it was described as the empire on which the sun never sets. But of course, the sun did finally set. And today, Britannia no longer rules the waves and its remnants consists of 13 small, dependent and unincorporated territories scattered across the world, such as the Falkland Islands and Gibraltar. The Mongol Empire of the 13th and 14th centuries uh, is recognized as being the largest contiguous land empire in history. It, of course, originated in Mongolia, but it at one time stretched all the way from Eastern Europe to the Sea of Japan, extending into the Indian subcontinent in the Middle East, covering 9.27 square million square miles. Our world has seen some massive kingdoms. And it begs the question, when you think about the nature of kingdoms and empires, what are your expectations for the kingdom of God? In the Gospel of Mark, as we've been seeing, Jesus has come and he has announced the coming of the kingdom of God. Remember, this is not yet a physical kingdom. The kingdom of God is present where the rule and the reign of Jesus is found in the lives of those who follow him. This is a spiritual kingdom that will one day become a physical kingdom. But how? When? What should we expect? I mean, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus announced the coming of this kingdom. We're still working. We're still waiting. We're still celebrating. We're still striving. And it would seem as if our expectations about the kingdom will help us to live in it and to live for the king all the more. And it's with that reality, the expectations of the kingdom that Jesus gives us three parables about this kingdom in Mark chapter 4, verses 21 to 34. And so I want to ask you to turn with me, Mark chapter 4, 21 to 34. The words will be on the screen behind me, or you could use that pew Bible in front of you, or the Bible that you brought with you. And we see three parables to help us understand the kingdom of God. This is what it says in verse 21. Jesus said to them, 
Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable should we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his very own disciples, he explained everything. Wrong expectations, wrong perspectives can distort our understanding of the kingdom and our place in it because things are not as they seem. What you see is not all that is happening. With wrong expectations, we can be confused or discouraged But Jesus gives us these parables, not for our discouragement, but for our encouragement. And the first of the parables answers the question, how will the kingdom grow? And he gives the parable of the lamp and the lampstand. In the ancient world, lamps were made out of clay and were set in a dish of oil with a wick that went right down the middle. The wick would suck up the oil, the oil would burn for fuel, and the flame would light the room. And for the best results, it doesn't take a genius to know that lamps were positioned in high places, so it would throw the light broadly across the room. Lamps that were placed near the floor did not illuminate the whole room, nor did lamps that were covered illuminate the room, but rather rather gave off just a dull glow. But the lamps that were lifted high, positioned clearly, were the ones that gave the greatest light. And in the parable, Jesus compares himself to the light on the lamp and the disciples as the ones who are positioning it. And It is their responsibility to place the lamp on the stand, to make the light known for all to see, or more clearly, to show the world the king. (laughs) This is how the kingdom grows, by putting the king on display for all to see. 
This is not a normal kingdom, kingdom like the kingdoms of the earth. It does not grow through conventional means. The kingdom of God doesn't grow when people are conquered by military force. It doesn't grow through financial leverage. The kingdom does not grow through multinational treaties, nor through the marriages of one royal family to the member of another royal family. The kingdom of God grows as people see the king. Jesus, the king, is the light to be magnified on the lampstand. He was introduced as such at the beginning of the Gospel of John. You might remember it. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And this king, this light is beautiful and compelling and irresistibly attractive. Continuing in John 1, 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And Colossians 1 describes this light, this king, as being in the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold Together, the kingdom grows when people see the king. And the application is not difficult to comprehend. It is a two-part thrust in application. The first, very clearly when you look at verses 23 and 24, pay attention to what you hear. <laughs> and we talked about that just a few weeks ago in the first part of Mark 4. Pay attention to how and what you hear. And secondly, we see the application of placing the lamp on the lampstand. This is the thrust of evangelism. All of the followers of the king have the opportunity and the responsibility to put the light on the stand to make the king known. <laughs> Now, many of us struggle in this area, and you've heard me say it probably before, and I'll say it again. I think there are a lot of different reasons why we struggle. There's probably three main reasons in our time today, in our culture today, why many of us struggle in our evangelism, struggle to make the king known. The first is that I hear from a lot of people is they just don't know what to say. I don't want to screw it up. I want to represent King Jesus. I want to make him known. I don't know how to say it. And that's why over this past year, we've done a church-wide training called Learn the Gospel. Not only so you can learn the gospel for yourself, but also so you can know how to communicate the gospel to somebody else. And there's a refresher in that training that's happening right now in adult Sunday school on Sunday mornings if you want to hop in. 
Secondly, I think that there are a lot of people that don't functionally believe in hell. And when you believe in hell, there is a motivation for heaven. This last week or week and a half ago, Gallup came out with a very interesting poll about the beliefs of Americans about the five major spiritual entities. God, angels, demons, the devil, heaven and hell. And what we see in the poll is not surprising. It reflects our culture that the beliefs of these entities have continued to edge lower and lower and lower to really new all-time lows. For example, among 18 to 34-year-olds, 59% of people believe in God, while only 49% believe in the devil. 55% of 18 to 34-year-olds believe in heaven, but 52 believe in hell. When you change the age bracket, the numbers go up, but the disparity is even more sharp. For example, among those 55 years old and older, 75% of Americans believe in heaven, but only 64% believe in hell. It's interesting. Of course, a higher number believe in heaven, which makes sense as they're nearing the day of their own mortality. But the disparity of 11% of heaven and hell is concerning. There are a lot of people who conversely say they believe in heaven and hell, but they don't function like they actually do. And that's maybe even where some of us are. But the Bible is very clear. The kingdoms of the world and the priorities of the world and placing yourself on the throne of your own life and continuing to live in the sin that we have will lead us to a tormenting hell apart from God forever because of our sin. But the kingdom of God will lead us to an everlasting heaven with God because of the forgiveness and grace that Jesus offers us. And this compels us, the fear of hell and the glories of the kingdom to make the king known. I think the third reason why we don't often evangelize today is that for many of us, we just have begun to believe the cultural lie that polite, good citizens don't talk about politics or religion in mixed company. That's for those cantankerous types. But if you want to be an upstanding type, you don't talk about these things in polite company. And at the core, that is really a reflection or a fear of your personal reputation. And yet, if the king is beautiful and glorious and compelling, we need to overcome our personal fear to make him known. Verse 22 says, Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor anything secret except to come to the light. Jesus was hidden in order to be revealed. He was concealed in order to be disclosed. The kingdom grows 
as those who are his followers show people the king. This is God's way. God's kingdom will grow in God's way. The second parable is about the cause of growth in the kingdom. Have you ever been frustrated that it doesn't seem like the kingdom of God is growing fast enough? I mean, if God is so great, then why isn't there an immediate response every time I make him known? If the king is known and people are confronted with the reality of their sin and the love and generosity of God in his grace and forgiveness, then why don't people respond every single time? Well, the answer that the parable gives is the cause of kingdom growth happens in God's time. Verse 26, the kingdom is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The parable is in some way a lesson about what we can do and what we can't do. It's a lesson for those who sow the seeds of the gospel. It's a lesson for Christians. The ones who aren't part of the kingdom don't care about this because it's not their job to sow the seeds of the king, of the gospel, of God's word. But for those who follow Jesus as their king, some perspective is needed. So what can we do? Well, those who participate in the expansion of God's kingdom have a tremendous role. They scatter the seeds of God's word on the ground. They place the lamp high in the room for all to see. They make the king known and they make his word known. They spread the seed of the word, which Jesus says earlier in chapter four, falls on different types of soils of the heart. And that for the seed that falls on fertile soil of the heart, something amazing happens. It sprouts and it grows. And this is the mystery of the expanding kingdom. This is what we can do. This is what we're called to do. This is what we must do. There's too much at stake not to do it. If we don't do it, then we clearly haven't understood the nature of the king himself or the kingdom itself. We love people too much not to do it. We find Christ too valuable not to do it. We can be sowers of the seed. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, the farm never brings forth a harvest without sowing. Weeds will grow without our help, but not so with wheat and barley. The human heart is so depraved that it will naturally bring forth evil in abundance. And Satan is quite sure not to let it lie without a sowing of evil seed. But if ever a man's soul is to yield fruit unto God, the seed of truth must be cast into it from outside of it. That's what we can do. What we cannot do. Well, 
We can provide an environment, the right conditions for growth, loving people, solid priorities, opportunity, regular exposure to God's word. We can give ingredients, the spiritual equivalent to the sun and the rain that theoretically should make a seed sprout up and grow. But can we actually make the seed grow? No. Do we really understand all the minute and individual mechanics that become causal in a person's heart? I mean, think about what happens in the regeneration of just one person in their life with all of their unique circumstances and personality can we give somebody a vision for God and a hearing of his word and cause spiritual blinders to be removed and ears to be unplugged? Can we impose conviction of sin on somebody and contrast that to the holiness of God? Can we give somebody a desire to be right with God? Can we cause repentance and the turning away from sin? Can we cause a person to surrender their will to the king, which is what happens in conversion? Can we commit somebody else to follow Jesus and the king and to live by his ways? And can we instill in somebody, injecting right into their mind and into their heart, a hope that will last from the day of their conversion to the day of their death? Can we do that? Can we cause somebody to have those things? Can we do it for more than one person at the same time? or hundreds at the same time, or thousands, or millions? Of course not. God grows his kingdom in his time. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The parable helps our perspective in a number of ways. The first one is it helps our expectations for growth because I want to see growth immediately. You want to see growth immediately. We're incredibly impatient people. It's a good desire to want to see growth immediately, but when we don't, see God's kingdom grow, when, God, when we don't see God's churches grow, when we don't see our own church grow for a season and more people come to Christ, does that mean that God is not present, that the spirit is not working? Does it mean that we need to all of a sudden change course and abandon all of the work of sowing seeds of the word of God? No. Because... God's kingdom grows in God's timing. Secondly, it helps us understand a healthy standard for evaluating success in ministry. External realities, conversion, growth, excitement, enthusiasm, are not our only standard for success and not even our primary standard for success. 
Instead, faithfulness to God's word, faithfulness to God in our speech, in our behavior, expelling the work of ministry in a godly way, the growth of spiritual desires and affections, even when we don't see explosive growth, these things constitute success. Why? Because God's kingdom grows in God's timing. Thirdly, it means that we should not envy the ones who reap the harvest of souls even when we are not. Because it can be easy to become jealous or envious when you work for God, when you work at your office and you've been diligently trying to share the gospel with somebody. You work in your neighborhood, you're having your neighbors over for dinner, you're moving from casual conversation to serious conversation to spiritual conversation because you want to put the lamp on the lampstand. You want to show them the king and nothing happens. It can be easy to become envious or jealous when you work really hard in the ministry of your own church as so many of you do, but the church down the road receives and experiences a revival. (laughs) But instead of being envious, You rejoice, we rejoice in the work of God even when we aren't the ones reaping the harvest because God's kingdom grows in God's timing. That's why Paul tells the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Fourthly, When the time comes, be ready to reap. Verse 29, when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Sometimes people are spiritually ready, but we're so scared or hesitant, we're not there to help close the deal, to put the sickle in. God is the one who converts, but he uses people to do that. That's one thing you can do. You can sow the seeds. You can participate in reaping the harvest. You cannot cause the growth because God does that. Born in 1761 in a small town in the middle of England, William Carey was converted to Christianity as a boy. And as he grew older, he learned the importance of steady plodding. Near the end of his life, he would say, I can plod. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this, I owe everything. In 1783, after conversations with Andrew Fuller and having examined the scriptures, he submitted himself to baptism. And just a few years later, he began to preach at a small dying congregation. And as he grew, he became increasingly discontent with the urgency for evangelism and missions among his contemporaries. And so in the spring of 1791, at the age of 30, he preached from Isaiah chapter 54, 2 and 3, which says, enlarge the place of thy tent. And he concluded with an unforgettable call. Expect great things, attempt great things. Seeds needed to be sown. The kingdom needed to expand. And so shortly thereafter, he and some of his colleagues would form a new society. 
a society called the Society of the Propagation of the Gospel Among the Heathen. I don't think that quite has a ring that would catch today. The Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, the Spread of the Gospel Among the Heathen, those who don't know Jesus. Seeds needed to be sown. The kingdom needed to expand. Great things were expected, and now it was time for some great attempts. And so in 1793, against many obstacles from his own church, from his wife, and from the mighty East India country, William Carey and a companion were commissioned to take the gospel to the, to the Bengalis in India. Seeds needed to be sown. The kingdom needed to be expand, expanded. But what happened next was less than impressive from a human perspective for many, many years. Over the first number of weeks, his ministry partner, John Thomas, abandoned him. He took the missions money that was meant for both of them to support them, and he established a medical practice with it to pay off his debts. Carrie's wife, her sister, and their children all suffered from dysentery, he was forced to get a job at an indigo plant to provide for his family. And in the coming seven months, his family moved five times. There were no outward signs of fruit for his work in the ministry. He wrote, when I left England, my hope of the conversion of the heathen was very strong. But among so many obstacles, it would die away entirely unless upheld by God. Nothing to exercise it, plenty to obstruct it for now a year and 19 days. Discouragement mingled with faith. He would write, well, I have God and his word is sure. And for a long time, my mouth has been shut up and my days have been beclouded with heaviness. But now I begin to be something like a traveler who has been almost beaten out of a violent storm and who with his clothes about him dripping wet sees the sky begin to clear. But unfortunately, the skies would not clear. They only got darker. Upon their next move, he would contract malaria and suffer greatly through it. Dorothy, his wife, would suffer dysentery again, and their five-year-old son would die. This sent Dorothy into a mental and emotional decline that she would never recover from for the rest of her life. Carrie was overwhelmed. He said, this is indeed the shadow of the valley of death for me, except that my soul is much more insensible than John Bunyan's pilgrim. Oh, what I would give for a kind and sympathetic friend such as I had in England to whom I might open my heart. As usual, in depression and desperation, he clung to his faith. He said, I rejoice that I am here notwithstanding and that God is here who can not only have compassion but is able to save to the uttermost. And he plotted, and he plotted, and he plotted. Over two years into their time in India, he still did not see a single convert. He kept translating the Bible in the evening in various languages of the people while managing the indigo factory in the day. 
Soon he would take up the study of another language, Sanskrit, and by the spring of 1797, a Bengali New Testament was translated and ready for printing. Jesus said that the kingdom is as if a man would scatter the seed. He sleeps and he rises. And the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. Finally, in December of the year 1800, seven years after he had arrived, Carey baptized the first Indian convert, a man named Krishna Pal. And then in February of 1801, the first Bengali New Testament came off the printing press, and later the first mission station was built. It was the first of 19. 18 more would follow. They would later start a divinity school and train local pastors. Carey translated the full Bible in six languages and parts of the Bible in 29 others. And it was a monumental achievement, just, not just because of the sheer scope, but it's because William Carey was a self-educated English cobbler. But seeds needed to be sown. He expected great things and they didn't come. And they didn't come and they didn't come and they didn't come and life was hard and wrought with difficulty. And then one day, God gave the growth. So he plotted for 40 years with all of the conviction and the glory of the king and all of the need and urgency of the gospel for those in India through the death of two wives, children, close friends, multiple ailments himself, he plotted. And eventually, God gave the growth. So don't give up. Some of us have given up on our neighbors, <laughs> maybe after seven days. Some of us have given up on our kids. Some of us don't share the gospel anymore because nobody's ever responded. But don't give up. The kingdom will grow in his way and in his time. Don't give up after seven days or seven months or seven years because God gives the growth. And with that, Jesus moves to the third parable and we address it briefly. If the second parable emphasizes the process of growth, the third emphasizes the size and the sheer contrast of something of small beginnings and great results. Things are not as they appear. He says in verse 30 that with what shall we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. And yet it, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all of the garden plants and puts out large branches 
so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. The mustard seed is not actually the smallest seed, but it stood for the smallest seed proverbially in the ancient world. You might remember that Jesus told his disciples if they had little faith, even just a little bit of faith, faith the size of a mustard seed, that they could say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing would be impossible for you. And so Jesus makes the point that when it comes to the kingdom, things are not what they appear. Something that the world sees humble, something as the world sees as insignificant, will turn into something with great enormity. God does this throughout the Bible with seemingly insignificant people and beyond. (laughs) He uses little David to conquer Goliath. He uses fishermen and tax collectors to spread the gospel and to be the disciples of the Savior. He used a self-trained cobbler from England for the propagation of the gospel in India. Jesus says something as small as a mustard seed will grow into the largest of garden plants, 10 to 7 to 10 feet high. Something seemingly hidden, small, obscure to the world will become the rain of the eternal God of the universe among people in such a way that they cannot and will not imagine. This is the mystery of the kingdom. God's kingdom will grow in his way, in his time, and to his size. God's kingdom will grow his way, in his time, to his size. And so let's just conclude by asking the simple question. What are your expectations for the short years of your life? The days are long. The years are short. What can you control and what can't you control? What happens if you do not see what you want to see in the years ahead, will you give up shining the light on the lampstand of the king? Will you give up sowing the seeds? Don't give up. Don't give up. The kingdom will grow of God in his way and his time and his size. The Lord Jesus came as the king. He died to save sinners to forgive them that they would enter the kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom now that will one day become a visible and physical kingdom. Just try to imagine it with me. Even close your eyes if it helps. Think about the great kingdoms of the world. Maybe you've seen paintings or pictures. Think about the great Roman Empire of the first century with all of the pomp and the circumstance of chariots and horses and regalia and an emperor or the Mongol empire of the 12th and the 13th centuries with all of its Asian flair and the breadth from Eastern Europe to the Sea of Japan or the British empire of the 19th and 20th centuries where there was no place in the known world where you could go. The sun wouldn't shine on the British empire And now try, if you can, try to imagine the kingdom of God. Glorious, 
shrouded in splendor, filled with loving inhabitants, and lasting forever. And you are invited to be part of the kingdom by the king himself. And you, even you, (laughs) play a part in its expansion by making that king known. God's kingdom will grow in his way, in his time, and to his size. And of that, we can be sure. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our impatience. Forgive us for our short-sightedness. Forgive us for our weakness. And embolden us, strengthen us, give us patience and long-suffering and courage to be fruitful members of the kingdom. God, we do ask that we would see the growth of this kingdom. We know that you give us joy as members of the kingdom. We pray that that joy would increase all the more as we see the King Jesus even more clearly than we see him today. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.